Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based on the west side of Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictive compulsive behaviors. Welcome to my podcast, named after my recent book, It's Not About the Sex. Here we have honest conversations related to compulsive sexual behavior and trauma, all from a sexual health perspective. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints and practical strategies toward establishing greater intimacy and a more deeply connected life. Let's begin. Today, we're going to be speaking with Joni Lavick, licensed marriage and family therapist. And this is the biography that Joni wrote for herself. I have been a practicing psychotherapist for 60 years. 30 of them with the license. I have the best job in the world. Every day I get to do my favorite things, explore the human psyche, help people, and make money. Nothing makes me happier than feeling useful. My practice is asset-based, and in this field, that's harder than you think. Welcome, Joni. I'm so glad you could join us here today. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. I've always wanted to have a conversation more in depth about the kind of work that you do. So today is that opportunity. To begin with, if you could share with our listeners, what, what is your origin story? Um, I'm always really curious about every psychotherapist's origin story because I think we all have one. And um, it's sort of the thing that got us into this work. And my feeling is I've sort of been a therapist forever with friends, even in middle school. But I think the real thing was that my mother always brought home these very strange relatives. For example, she'd bring home cousin Clara and cousin Clara would never have the lipstick right in her lips. And she'd had this wild look in her eyes and she, and she lived in a woman's shelter and she was a very odd duck. Mm. And I would say to my mother, what's wrong with cousin Clara? And my mother would say, cousin Clara has a mental illness. And mm. I would go, and this was when I was like seven or eight years old. And I would go, wow, mental illness. What's that? That's really interesting. Then on my father's side, my father was a salesman and he loved sending me out to like sell lottery tickets for like Mount Sinai hospital or something. And I'd be knocking on doors and He'd say things like, sales is great. You have to take the no's to get the yeses. So I had this father who would tell me to go out and be out there and meet people. And this mother, who I would al always ask her about other people and planted mm -hmm. the seed. And then I would read books like, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden and The Three Faces of Eve. And you'd see movies like The Snake Pit. And they're would be this constant like understanding that there were people out there that didn't think the way that I thought. And then there was sales work. And so for me, it was like a done deal. There, there wasn't anywhere else to go. I had to become a psychotherapist. So the combination was inevitable. <laughs> the combination was inevitable. I, I tend to look at this job with some people raise an eyebrow as sort of a sales job but what I'm selling you is you. I want mm. you to be as interested in you as I'm interested in you. 
And my whole thing about being an asset-based therapist, so mm -hmm. many people are not interested enough in themselves. They don't know how to talk about themselves. You have mm. to teach them how to be curious about their own story. Mm. Oh, and then of course, a bachelor's degree, University of Minnesota, and then a master's degree in counseling psychology from Loyola Marymount. And then all the, all the work that I've been doing for 30 plus years catches you up to like, oh, wow, she's a psychotherapist now. Look at that. I want to go back to what you said about helping your clients be interested in themselves. Yeah. That's so beautiful. I don't know if I've ever heard it put into those terms. And what I'm hearing is that as a kid, you were really curious and you're really asking your clients or giving them the invitation to be curious about themselves. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And then, of course, we know, depending on how traumatized people were in their childhood, I feel being curious about yourself is inextricably tied to the feeling and sense of safety. And so in order to even be able to explore your own internal self, you have to feel safe first. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, I think that as therapists, we need to create an experience of safety for our clients so that they can actually dive into that exploration. Mm -hmm. And some of our clients don't even know what the concept of safety is. Mm -hmm. So you have to educate to someone about this is what safety is. This is what trusting people is. Um, when you ask someone, how do you know if you feel safe? They interpret that as meaning someone's not gonna jump out and stab them and not really understand that the, the basis of safety is secure attachment and a secure base. Right. And, and I know you um, believe this piece as well, but, but in the body, there is that experience of, of safety, right? That, that sense of feeling in the moment, feeling regulated, yeah. feeling like there's a sense of, of, of trust and, and, relaxation that goes along with trust. So yeah, that that's, that's great. I think that's such a, a foundational piece for sure. And then so depending on who we're working with, you may have to start with feeling less unsafe because so many people having not had that experience, even briefly, what you're just talking about, that feeling of groundedness and calm and security in the body, you may have to start with, well, does coming to therapy and being in this session with me now feel a little bit less unsafe? Because yeah. I think it's really disingenuous of us to think that just because someone comes to therapy, they're going to feel safe because mm -hmm. therapy is not safe. Therapy exactly. is like you're under a microscope, you're going to be questioned, you don't know what you might have to face shameful stories about yourself so yeah so it's a you know building blocks absolutely i could actually talk the whole episode about that alone <laughs> because safety and trust and uh, wow it's just so significant to the work we do but i want to fast forward because as you know we we focus here a lot on addictive compulsive behaviors yes and i'm wondering how you started treating addictions I would love to answer that question because my way in to treating addiction is not the usual way in. Most therapists that we know who start treating addiction have had 
behavioral problems with drugs, alcohol, process addictions themselves. And they often get into treating addiction because, you know, physician heal thyself, understanding um, what it was like for them to confront it and move forward. But my way in to treating addiction came through the HIV AIDS epidemic. I started working with people with HIV and AIDS um, in 1988 at Shanti Foundation. And that was, I mean, in the 80s, it was before 1995 when protease inhibitors came in and people stopped dying. So it was quite, a, it was, it was quite the experience. It's a dark time. Very dark time. Um, uh, there are a lot of parallels between what AIDS was like in the 80s and COVID today. Um, but I felt that it was much darker. I started working with these people at Shanti Foundation and then um, got a job um, at the LA Gay and Lesbian Center at the Jeffrey Goodman Clinic. And there was so much death and dying and people were lamenting the fact that the one thing that they've never experienced in their short lives was a relationship. And they, many, many, most of, mostly men, but I have also ran a group for heterosexuals at Shanti Foundation, so it was women too, but mostly men, were really regretful of the fact that they never had a relationship. So I started exploring what might have been the impediment, why they never had a relationship, and I found this thing that they had, which was sexual compulsivity. Mm. And this to me was like, some kind of new thing. I mean, I had gay friends. I knew about bathhouses. I knew about um, promiscuous sex. I knew about all of it, but not in not combined with fears about dying and understanding that what was going on in these men's lives was an inability to connect um, to people. So it's not about the sex, Andrew. <laughs> Sound familiar. And, um, and, and it just opened my eyes in terms of what I could totally see so clearly was what, I, what these individuals lacked was the feeling of safety and security in relationship. This led me into the study of attachment theory and understanding what stops people from feeling secure in relationship. Mm. And, um, this was, like I say, this was way back in the late 80s, way back in the late 80s and early 90s. I remember back then, um, Rob Weiss was still working with um, uh, Patrick Carnes at Del Amo Hospital. And I took a course with him about um, working with sexual compulsivity. And so that and then so I'm finding out there's the inability to feel attached and connected. Mm. And then in addition to the, um, the sexuality um, was also a lot of methamphetamine addiction. So it was kind of a double whammy. And that, that was when I first started understanding all those things combined together. The mm -hmm. insecure attachment, the inability to sustain relationship and feel safe, the sexual compulsivity, and the methamphetamine use. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of how I, how I started working with these elements. Sure. And, and so that was, that was the start of it. So as we know, there's so many different approaches to working with addiction or compulsive behaviors. And 
I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about how you treat addictions and what your clinical lens looks like. My, what my clinical lens looks like is if there's one thing that I feel that people who have addiction issues share, it's the inability to have any sort of resilience for positive and expansive emotion. Because in most cases, people who have come up through addiction also have a lot of trauma in their background. And what do we know about recovery from addiction? When do people relapse? People generally relapse when things start to go well, when they get 90 days sober, when they get their job back, when they might have another relationship potential, when they start feeling good about themselves. Because of the trauma, they, this, this feeling of resilience to be able to sustain positive emotion is lacking. Hmm. And I have found that when I educate people about, no, you actually have to build resilience to be able to tolerate good things happening because of the trauma in your history, people understand it instantly. And so I work on, that's when I say I'm an asset-based therapist. Hmm. I try to help people find their strengths. And if you make your strong points stronger, then the weak ones fall away. So for me, the constant investigation of, you know, like medical model stuff, like what are your triggers and why do you use and what situations are you using in? And mm -hmm. what I find happens is if you're only just talking about everything that's not working, you just get better at understanding and talking about what's not working and that I want to help somebody understand what does work. So my, my main focus is this, it's about helping people find healing moments that are positive and expansive and asset-based. So I might give a homework assignment and I might say, notice when you're feeling joy, notice when you're feeling hope. So, mm -hmm. so Andrew, tell me a moment when you felt pride. Wow. So yesterday, uh -huh. my little, I call him my little cousin, he's 25 now. Okay. But I'll always call him my baby cousin. He um, works in, in Harlem and uh, works for a program that, believe it or not, invites IV drug users off the street to come into their facility to use in front of them. Mm -hmm. And it's the only program like that in the country, actually, wow. that's been validated by uh, de Blasio actually was the one who kind of gave mm -hmm. his blessing on it. And my cousin was in the New York Times on Sunday, and it's a long article for anyone who's interested. Uh -huh. And and the pride in Yiddish, the naches, oh, <laughs> that the I have yeah. for, for, for this um, little boy who's now yeah. a man yeah. is just puts a smile on my face. Yeah. And then how do you feel that pride in your body? I, I get goosebumps, like I feel warmth mm -hmm. in my arms. Right. Um, I feel warmth in my chest. I feel my smile. I, I, yeah, I just so feel smile, it all over. Your warmth in your chest, that's expansive. So that's the kind of work that I want to be doing with my clients. I want to help. You're great because you know how to, you, you can track, you were able to track an emotion in your body, yeah, you. <laughs> uh, but obviously, you know, not everybody can do that. Mm -hmm, right. And then again, depending on someone's resilience for positive emotion, I mean, it can be something as easy 
to understand is like, how is it for you when someone gives you a compliment? I mean, we've got tons of people that can't even say thank you. That as soon as someone pays you a compliment, you immediately go into yes, but you're so contracted mm -hmm. that you can't even take in somebody telling you something good about yourself. So again, what I'm saying in terms of the homework, note, can you notice when you're inspired? Can you notice when you're curious? Can you notice when you have pride, mm -hmm. um, you know, or love or serenity or amusement? Anyone, any one of these positive asset-based feelings for me then become homework um, in terms of being able to try to notice these fleeting healing moments in order to start growing that feeling of expansiveness and the ability to tolerate positive emotion. And unfortunately, I think a lot of therapy, it, 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 it's almost the exact opposite. That's when mm -hmm. I say how hard it is sometimes to be an asset-based therapist, because so often what's happening in the therapy is you're actually sort of reinforcing notice when you're feeling the negatives. Right. So a couple things come up for me as you're, you're sharing that. So first of all, I, I, I hear as an asset, asset based therapist, I hear how you are constantly looking for that moment when someone in session is able to experience any of those positive emotions. And right. really, I, I sometimes think of it as a butterfly that, that sometimes we'd have to take our, our butterfly net and grab it before it goes away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I wanted to just ask you, because I think this is really about neuroplasticity, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we've talked yep. about neuroplasticity on, on the podcast before, which is really how the brain learns mm -hmm. that, 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 that well-worn path of maybe shame or, or low self-esteem or whatever that might be. It, it's really carving out a new path and, right. and really encouraging that over and over and over. And, and the word that came to mind for me is that it, it becomes a practice for our clients. It's a practice. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Hard warrior and happiness, the, the Rick Hansen book, the brain that changes itself, the Norman Deutsch book, which I think has the best chapter on sexual compulsivity I've read in any book. Mm. Um, uh, um, but, but those are, those, those ideas are all about exactly what you're talking about. Neuroplasticity, rewiring something different and then the other thing that you mentioned is how for me what the most healing thing about the therapy is it's the relationship it's what goes on between me and you mm -hmm. and and if i can use that butterfly net and if mm -hmm. i can actually see in that moment where there's a connection between um me and the client and i can you know do do the the opposite of addiction is connection thing Right. And and I can point out that, oh, wow, I just felt, did you feel that? You know, and, that, and then that also can start like the little tendrils of like, you know, some sort of an understanding of what, what connection is. So you mentioned attachment earlier. And, yeah. and of course, when you say connection, you're also referring to attachment. But I'm wondering if you could share just a little bit more about how attachment fits into your approach to therapy and, and approach to treating addiction. 
Sure, it's easy. So um, I'm an expert in attachment theory. And uh, over 20 years ago, I learned how to give and score the adult attachment inventory, which is Mary Main's instrument out of Berkeley. And I teach this, which is really fun for me. But the thing about attachment and understanding from an early childhood experience, zero to five and beyond, secure attachments in the nervous system and secure attachment is somatic. Because when you think about from zero to five, that's all that there is, attunement, reciprocal understanding between the caregiver and the infant. And when there's misattunement, neglect, physical abuse, um, just incredible derogatory comments, um, role reversal in childhood. If you can understand the deficit of, an, of, a, of not having a secure attachment, and you can understand that these triggers are so unconscious and somatic. Sometimes I think that Freud said that um, the royal road to the unconscious is dreams. Mm -hmm. I think that if he was around now, he would say that the body, kind of like Bessel van der Kolk, the royal road to the unconscious is the body. And so for me, that's where the attachment and the security and the understanding of what goes on in those really incredible years when your nervous system is really wired, how that impacts. And when I can help someone understand what was missing perhaps in, in their family of origin experience and their caregiver's experience, then that I think is also really such an important piece of the healing. Mm. So let me ask a, a related question. I used to think that my job as therapist was to help my clients establish a secure attachment with me. And to some extent that that has truth, but I've learned that actually part of what needs to happen first, in my opinion, is to know what gets in the way. What are those obstacles, barriers mm -hmm. that get in the way of establishing a secure attachment so that we can take them one by one and hopefully um decrease the power of them yeah. is that is that um, kind of how you would describe it um i'm gonna i'm gonna take what you said and i'm gonna like do a little riff on it please i feel that one of my jobs as a therapist is to provide an experience i want to provide an experience for you whether it's a misattunement or an attunement that then in the safety and the microcosm of the therapy, we can analyze the experience. And then once you can, once you create that experience, you identify it. And if you're skilled enough as a therapist to point it out when it happens, and then you're able to break it down as you're talking about, mm -hmm. then, then I think that that does exactly what you're saying. That's what happens is that right. you're, you're able to say, and, and then you're able to tease out perhaps triggers, old triggers, old, mm -hmm. old patterns in the nervous system and, and say, this is getting in the way of your security in mm -hmm. other relationships outside of the therapy. And the experience that we just had together, we're going to use that 
to help you understand in, with the with the macrocosm of the real world when when those things get repeated. Mm, that's terrific, and and I. I, I really like how you articulate that because it, it speaks to the relationship between the client and the therapist, of course. But yeah. again, it's I think there's that butterfly of 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 being able to catch when there's that opportunity to really look at whatever's happening under a microscope. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've been doing this now. This is my thirtieth year being licensed. Mm-hmm. And another thing that I do besides just seeing clients all the time, like you, I've supervised many, many interns along the way at all sorts of places around town. And what I say to somebody that's just a trainee or an associate that's just starting out, this is a job I feel where you were a beginner for 10 years. I don't think there's any way around it. And when you're talking about what we're talking about, it we're talking about a learning curve here. <laughs> And, 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 and catching those moments, those elusive moments, some people are actually afraid of them when they happen, Mm -hmm. a a therapist and they, they know something's happened, but you have to then be able to kind of jump in and go, oh, look, that just happened. Right. Which for a younger therapist or a, how do we put it? A newer therapist, it it's it's a little scary and mm-hmm. and yet you and i know that we have to disrupt yes. the moment that's part of what we do and and that's part of where the growth happens i would say disruptions are your friend because Absolutely. when a disruption happens you can repair the disruption and there's so much attachment um healing that can happen with the disruption and the repair in the therapy session. Sure. Yeah. I wanted to go back to the term asset-based therapy because I don't know if our listeners have ever heard that particular word. And and I love that you bring that in, Joni, because it's it's important to really highlight what what that means to you, but also the the paradigm shift that you're talking about. Yeah. And I may I'm I'm sure I'm not the only one. It's what I use. I've heard strengths-based, but I don't like that as much. So I just say asset-based. One of the other influences in my work is positive psychology. I read a lot about it. I go to positive psychology conferences. Positive psychology is about the study of happiness. They're, positive psychologists are very serious about happiness. <laughs> but But I call it asset-based because as I said before, my goal is to help you find your strengths. And if I can find your strengths, if we can find your strengths and make your strong points stronger, then I feel the weak ones fall away. I'm no Pollyanna, I think you know that. Um, and, And this idea too of inserting the optimism into the therapy isn't the easiest thing for clients to tolerate because like what I was saying before, a lot of times there isn't even the resilience for the positive. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's really hard to be optimistic, but I happen to be a very optimistic person. I feel that therapy works. I've seen it work. And and so the way that it works for me, the the, the method that I use is this. It, it's about the assets. It's about helping someone find the strength, their own strengths. Yeah, what I love about that, and I'm also a positive psychology follower, 
And um, is that it it just turns things upside down. You and I both came from more traditional therapy backgrounds. Mm -hmm. That was really about deficits and what's wrong and defenses and resistance and all of that, which has value in in some ways. I mean, I, I wouldn't trade that training for anything. But I think what we're talking about is is really helping our clients build the capacity to live life in a more expansive and loving way. Yeah. And also, I think in terms of the paradigm shift, everything you said, plus the medical model. I mean, what's our field based on? It's based on the medical model. We have this whole book, the DSM, and it's all about all the stuff that is broken. And and now I think we're entering into, after 100 plus years, the medical model is not the best model mm-hmm. to help our clients, our, our addicted clients, our depressed clients, our anxious clients. The medical model is not the best way. Right. And and as a parallel, I believe in the 12 steps wholeheartedly because it's part of my own journey. But for instance, they talk about character defects. Yes. Yeah, And they talk about... Um, basically you know the the medical model of illness right that yes. that that you're only as sick as your secrets and and granted there at this point i think it's important for me and my clients to take things with a grain of salt and like the program talks about take what you like and leave the rest mm-hmm. but it it really does teach the brain um what what you feed it and and mm-hmm. so you know, I could definitely get high on my soapbox around this, but I, th- I think what you're you're sharing is so vital that the the science of happiness, and this is a science, and mm-hmm. we're learning through brain scans and all kinds of interesting uh, research that that there's so much more to um, to work with in terms of positive emotion, like uh, Seligman talked about way back when, and, and continues to talk about. Um, I'm needing to wind down our talk and I really have enjoyed our time together, but I have one last question for you, Joni. If if, if there's a takeaway for our audience today, maybe one or two things that you really want to drill home, what, what would that be? Oh, without question, the whole thing about building resilience for positive and expansive emotion and how all of us have to work on it all the time. And, and, and it's, it sounds simple, but it's not, you really have to work on building your container and your capacity to take in as much good as you can, because if you're only focused on what's broken, going back to what you're saying about the research, focusing on catastrophizing and all the bad things that can happen is a very narrow point of view. The wider our point of view is, the more we can take in, the better we can feel about ourselves, the more options we have, the more we can see in the point of view of our world, the better, the stronger that we are, we're better for everybody else in our lives. So I'm just all like about flag waving about build your resilience when somebody says, thank you, feel proud about it, (laughs) you know? And I, I think I think that's like, and, and what you're saying too, if you're doing 12-step program, 
don't just do character defects, throw in another step and, and ask your sponsor to help you do, to do asset character assets and all of your right. character strengths and mm-hmm. not just not. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I think, I think that's, I think that, and therapy works. Therapy's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, your, your enthusiasm is infectious. Oh, good. <laughs> so, Johnny, I so appreciate you joining us here today. And I would love to continue our conversation at some point because I feel like we just brushed the surface and you have so much to share. So I hope you'll you'll come back again. Oh, I'd love to. It was really fun. And thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. <laughs> Take good care. Thanks for listening today. It was so wonderful sharing the time with my colleague and friend, Joni Lavick, and discussing this really meaningful topic. She can be reached at 310-288-1679. And if you're so inclined, please give us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe and share my podcast with those who may benefit. I look forward to you joining us the next time. And don't forget to stay connected.